First John chapter number two, and I'm going to read the first two verses and launch out into the deep. First John chapter two, verse one, my little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only. I don't think you can get any plainer than this. And not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. And several months ago, we began preaching on that, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we were talking about John, the beloved. And because he sat where the others wouldn't sit, and because he stood where the others wouldn't stand, and because he got to serve when the others didn't get to serve, He got to see what the others didn't see. And we've launched out into preaching on just what did John see. And we're trying to get to the book of the Revelation and preach on the seven times where in his revelation he talked about behold. Behold the Lord. Behold the land. And I'm trying my best to get to revelation to see what John saw. But I felt like in my heart we could not bypass this little five-chapter book of 1 John because before we can ever, ever know we have a future in Christ, we must first understand our standing and our position in Christ. I'm glad the Lord is coming. I'm glad there is a heaven. But I'm glad I'm saved and I get to go. And in the book of 1 John, he shows us some wonderful truths and blessings about the Christian life. Now, we did not go in order. A couple of weeks ago, we preached from chapter number 3, where he saw a future that was delightful. He said, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. I like that, don't you? For we shall see him as he is. Then last Sunday, we went back to chapter number one and we saw a fellowship that was divine. I'm ready for the future because I have fellowship. We talked about the fellowship we have not only with the Lord, but with one another. And I'm glad if you walk away from that fellowship, the very thing that got you in is the very thing that will bring you back. That is the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. This morning I want you to come to chapter number 2 and these first two verses. Not only did John see a future that was delightful, Not only did he see a fellowship that is divine, but in these two verses today, he saw a forgiveness that's delivering. And the reason why I have fellowship and the reason why I am ready for the future 
is because I have been forgiven. And to show you what I mean, he tells us who we are in the opening phrase of verse 1. My little children. He's speaking on behalf of God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I'm glad that I am a child of God. We ought to call recess and shout for 30 minutes right there. I'm not a twofold child of hell. I don't belong to the devil. I don't owe the devil anything. I don't owe him my time, my voice, my talents, anything. I belong to him. I belong to Jesus Christ. And it's good to know that we are his little children. We may get to a place in our life where we don't have health, wealth, fame, or fortune. But you'll never get to a place in your life when you will not have a heavenly father. And how in the world can a holy, sovereign, righteous God ever have fellowship with sinners like you and I? How did John see you and I brought into the life of God, the love of God, and the light of God? God who is holy, how does he establish a relationship to us who is unholy? Because I have been forgiven. My sins have been erased. I am forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm a child of God by birth and by blood. I accepted the finished work of Christ upon the cross. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, when I received and believed on Christ, a miracle was done in me. And no longer am I headed to a devil's hell. I'm a child of the King. Through the power of the birth of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Christ. And in these two verses today, he deals with this forgiveness, this how God establishes a relationship and delivers us from our sin. I want to go in detail a little bit this morning, these first two verses, and point out some things that John saw. The first thing I see in the text in verse 1, I see God's perfect plan. I see God's perfect plan. Notice how he words it in verse number 1, My little children, these things write I unto you, and say this next phrase out loud to me, that ye sin not. I believe God's perfect plan was for every man, every woman, every boy, every girl to live a life and not sin. God is not the author of sin. God is not the originator of sin. People that's living a different lifestyle, people that's turned away from the truth, they need to stop saying God made me this way. God did not make a sinner. God did not originate a sin. God's perfect plan is that every man, woman, boy, and girl live a life without sin. Can you imagine what a world we would live in if there was no sin? Can you imagine a world that we would live in if nobody ever committed a sin. There's a little song in the Red Book, and I've not sang it in years, but it's there called Sin is to Blame. When you see the sorrows of the Bible and you see the tragedies of the Bible, 
And you see the broken families and the broken lives in the Bible. There's one thing to blame that on. That is sin. Why sin broke up the first family. Sin caused the first child to grow up and be a murderer. The cost and the plague of sin is all through the Bible. And even to this very day, we see the results and the scars and the tragedy of sin. I stand before you today a old man because of sin. I don't have the strength I used to have. I don't have the health I used to have because of sin. And I and you other ball-headed fellows, I'm not just being ugly, but you know that is a result of sin. Because a perfect head has got to have hair. I, I will never believe a perfect head. Now, Brother Jones, don't you get too big for your britches. Everybody ain't blessed like that. But And I'm just telling you today, our teeth rot out. We have to wear glasses. We have to go to the doctor. I mean, the next time you go to the doctor and he tells you too, you're too fat, say, sin is to blame. If you go to the doctor and he says, you got to have a new hip, tell him, sin is to blame. The next time you ladies are giving birth to a baby and you're about to die, look at your husband and say, you and sin is the blame. Can you imagine a world with no sin? Can you imagine, and Joanna, I'm sorry, but you'd be out of business. There would be no need for lying lawyers and crooked judges. I mean, think about it. If there was no sin, I wouldn't have a job either. I mean, why should I preach if there's no sinners? Someone said, I heard Brother Joe let sinners come to his church. We let you come. Can you imagine a world with no sin? Can you imagine a world with no sinners? There wouldn't be an overpopulation of our prisons. There would be no juvenile delinquency. There would be no parole officers. There'd be no hospitals. Uh, There'd be no funeral homes. There'd be no orphanages. Can you imagine a world without sin and no sinners? And when that thought hit my mind about four o'clock this morning, I thought, no, I can't imagine a world without sin or sinners. And then the Holy Ghost reminded me that one day through the blood of Christ, we're going to a place called heaven. And there will be no sinners and there will be no sin. And I believe that's God's perfect plan. These things I write unto you that ye sin not. There's a difference today, ladies and gentlemen, between necessity and possibility. There's a great difference between necessity and possibility. Because sin is in the world, because sin has captivated the world, because sin has enslaved the world, that possibility is here that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's the possibility, but not the necessity. And I believe again, God's perfect plan is a world filled with people without sin. When you look around today and see the cost and the tragedy and the pillage of sin, I believe it breaks the heart of God. And someone asked me one time, they said, what do you think God's attitude and perception 
uh, of sin is. And I can answer that with this phrase, go to the cross. And what God allowed His darling Son to suffer and endure upon that cross will remind all of us God's attitude and hatred towards sin. I see God's perfect plan. I write these things that ye sinned not. But number two in the text, I want you to see God's perfect perception. I want you to see God's perfect perception. His plan was that we live in a world with no sin and no sinners. But in God's perfect foreknowledge and wisdom, He knew we would. Notice what He said in verse 1, And if any man sin. Ladies and gentlemen, God knew we would sin. God knew this world would not be perfect. God knew that the world would have to endure the sting and the tragedy and the pillage and the hurt of sin. God knew we were not perfect. God knew we would not be able to live above sin. You say, why do you think God knew that in his foreknowledge and in his perception? Because in the book of the Revelation, it says that Jesus Christ stands before the Father as the Lamb of God, having been slain from the foundation of the world. Read the book of Acts chapter number 2, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. He has sent God in His foreknowledge, sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for sinners. You know what blesses me? Before thou was ever a creation, thou was a Christ. You know what blesses me? Before Jesus ever condescended, ladies and gentlemen, before, before thou was ever one sin ever committed on planet earth, God already had a, a Savior. God's perfect perception, He knew that man would fall. He knew that man would sin. How many believe today that God knows everything? How many believe God knows the end before the beginning ever gets started? Here God is creating a man knowing that man will fail him, but he creates him anyway. God makes this man knowing he will curse and blaspheme him, but he makes him anyway. God is breathing in a man's nostrils, his life giving breath, and he knows he'll spit it back into his face one day and blasphemy, but he gives him breath anyway. That's why the apostle Paul could say in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You talk about a loving, wonderful, awesome God 
knowing we would fail him, knowing we would blaspheme him, knowing that we would disobey him, knowing that we would reject him, would create us anyway and infuse the breath of life in us anyway and love us anyway and have a provision for us anyway and go to the cross and die for our sins anyway. You talk about an awesome God. He created us with breath and we'd curse him with it. Created in us a will and we would refuse him with it. Give us a choice and we would reject him with it. But yet he created us anyway and he loved us anyway and he sent his son to die anyway. What an awesome God. Wow. Because his perfect plan is sin not. But his perfect perception is he knew we would. So if God knew we would, what did God do? I've been about to die for three days to tell you. Look in verse 1. His perfect plan, sin not, his perfect perception, yet or and if any man sin. Notice his perfect person. Notice his perfect person. What did God do when we messed up his perfect plan? Let me just ask you, anybody here today had your best laid plans? There is nothing anymore. And let me use the right term. Discombobulating. Aggravating. Stomping mad. For you to plan and to plan and to plan and to plan. The other night, Julie and I was coming back from a meeting. And we punched in our destination. We know where we live, but sometimes. But you know, if you, if you, if you type it in, if there's a wreck or roadblock, they'll tell you to take a detour. And, and so it says we're five and a half hours from 887 Plymouth Drive, Jonesboro, Georgia. And the farther we rode, the farther away from the house we got. When we first started, we were five and a half hours. Two hours later, we were five and a half hours. Three hours later, we're still five and a half hours. And I looked at her and she looked at me and I said, this is our whole life. We've been doing this ever since we've been married. Going nowhere and fussing every step of the way. You know, I don't understand women. We, 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 do, we do all the driving. We buy the car. We put the gas in it. We feed you. We put up with you. And then we fuss. And then you fuss at us when we get in a traffic jam and it ain't our fault. And just because we ran off the road seven times before we had a flat tire, it's not our fault when we do have one. I need some help in here now. Have you ever had your plans just... I mean, for days and days you're planning it. Buddy, plan A, plan B, plan C. It's going to work just right. The hip bone and the backbone and the foot bone, it's all going to come together. And all of a sudden you're sitting in a pile of ashes. You're sitting in a pile of misery and disappointment because your plans have fallen apart. 
What is God going to do about these creatures that He made in His own image, that He gave His breath to, that He gave a conscience, that He gave a soul, that He gave a living soul? How is God going to treat these special people that He made on the sixth day and they ruin and damage and pillage His plan? I'll tell you what He's going to do. On top of His perfect plan, on top of His perfect perception, He is going to send a perfect person. And it's in verse number 1. My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, here it is. We have an advocate with the Father. Here it is. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Can I ask you something today? What is God's answer to man's question? Jesus Christ, the righteous. What is God's antidote for man's sickness? Jesus Christ, the righteous. What is God's plan B when his plan A has been messed up? God doesn't have a plan A. He doesn't have a plan B. He doesn't have a plan C. But he has a perfect person, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Oh, God would love a world with no sin and no sinners. But he knew that there would be a world full of sin and full of sinners. So what is he going to do? Wipe the world off? Push the world off? Just throw the whole plan away? No, he is going to send his perfect person. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Ladies and gentlemen, Christ didn't used to be the answer. He's not one of the many different answers. He's not going to be some great discovery one day for the answer. He's the answer, always has been the answer, and always will be the answer. Because if you miss Jesus, you miss God, you miss God, you miss heaven, you miss heaven, you miss it all. I'm glad in an imperfect world, God sent a perfect Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ. The righteous. I want to say what a sight to behold. He saw God's perfect person. What is his name? Jesus Christ. Say that with me. That's his name. Jesus Christ. Well, just let that settle in a little bit. What's his name? Jesus Christ. What's Jesus mean? It means Savior. It means Deliverer. It means Emancipator. What does that mean? He shall save His people from their sin. His name is Jesus. What kind of power is in that name? How much you want. Neither is there salvation. Neither the name. That at the name of Jesus... You say, how much power is in that name? Answered prayer. Ask anything in my name. Amen. How much power is in that name? This much. That one day every knee in heaven and in earth and under the earth shall bow. And every tongue in heaven and on earth and under the earth shall confess that Jesus, that Jesus, His name is Jesus. God sent the emancipator. God sent the Savior. God sent the deliverer. And his name is Jesus. And if that was the only word there, that would be enough. But God said, I'm not finished. He's Jesus Christ. 
You know what Christ means? It means the Messiah. You know what Messiah means? It means the chosen one. You know what that means? It literally means the anointed of God. Can I tell you, there are not four saviors. There are not nine saviors. There are not even two saviors. One. Chosen and ordained and anointed by God. He's the chosen Jesus. He's the anointed Jesus. If Jesus means Savior, if it means emancipator, if it means deliverer, and Christ means anointed and chosen and approved, I guess you could say it like this. Uh, he's the anointed redeemer. He is the anointed emancipator. He is the anointed rescuer. He is the anointed savior. I'm glad God's answer for man's greatest problem is his perfect person. And his name is Jesus Christ. But not only do I see this person's perfect name, notice his perfect nature. Notice not only who he is, but what he is. I love what he says in verse number one. Jesus Christ, and with emphasis, the righteous. Look what it said in verse one. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. That means he is right with God. That means he's just right. That means everything about him is right. His name is right. His person is right. His qualities is right. He is without contradiction. He is without blemish. He is without spot. He is without wrinkle. He is without fault. He is without failure. He is without discrepancy. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. I was at the camp meeting the other night, and this little fellow come up to me and said, Brother Joe, all my children have their picture made with you when they were babies. And said, this is our new baby, and I want you to hold it up and give it a hug. I want to take your picture. So I whipped this little baby boy up about that high and picked it up there and held it up there and smiled like a big politician and had my picture made. One of my buddies that weighs about 321 was sitting beside of him. And he said, Brother Joe, I love you too. I've been coming to camp meeting long and that stupid kid's been coming. Pick me up and make my picture. So I sat in his lap and made the picture. Listen, I've been working out a little bit and I'm not as, you know, weak as I look. And I'm not as strong as I used to be. But I'm here to tell you, I can't pick up no 300 pound man and hug him and make his picture. I, I don't think I could pick up a 100 pound person and make up their, I don't, now I might, come here Dustin, I believe I could pick you up. But I'm just telling you, you can't pick somebody up if you're not strong enough to do it. Oh, how does Jesus Christ reach down, my God, in the depths of sin and in the degradation of sin and lift somebody up out of the miry clay of sin because he's righteous, he's qualified, he is able. 
Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is God's perfect person. His name is Jesus Christ and His character and His attributes is Jesus Christ, the righteous. A Savior can only save those who He is able to save. I think I'll say that again. A Savior can only save those He is able to save. And the last time I read Hebrews 7 said, He is able to save. To the uttermost. His name, His character. Notice in this text, His work. This perfect person, I see His perfect name, Jesus Christ. I see His perfect character, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But look in verse 1. I see His perfect work. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Not only who He is and what He is, but what does He do? He is the advocate. He says, here's my perfect plan. I wish you wouldn't sin. I'd love to see a world with no sin. But in my full knowledge and in my perception, I I, I know you're going to. And I've made this little provision. If any man sin, anybody here sin? You better raise both of them or you'll be guilty of lying. He said, we have, we have an advocate. Somebody that can fix that. Somebody that can broker that. Somebody who can equalize that out. And his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. You say, Brother Joe, what is an advocate? I'm about to die to tell you. It's the Greek word parakletos. And that word means to be called along one side to aid in the time of trouble. It literally means one that pleads the case of a guilty party. If this wasn't Sunday morning, I'd lay my mic down and I'd take me a lap. An advocate is somebody who comes along your side to aid in the time of trouble and plead someone's case who is guilty. A character is an undisputable, listen to this, it is an undisputable character witness. It is somebody who is called before the judge and testifies on behalf of the accused and says, here is how it really is. Ladies and gentlemen, God is the righteous judge, the eternal judge. And he looks down at you and I that fouled up his perfect plan and sinned all over the place. But instead of opening the gates of hell and saying, go on in, He said, let's try this. I'm going to send a perfect person with a perfect name, with a perfect nature. And he's going to stand beside of you and he's going to plead your cause. He is going to plead your case. He is going to advocate. He is going to troubleshoot. He is going to bridge build. He is going to stand in the gap. 
Oh, ladies and gentlemen, church membership ain't going to stand in the gap. And water baptism is not going to stand in the gap. And your family pedigree is not going to stand in the gap. And your good works is not going to stand in the gap. But standing in the gap between heaven and hell is Jesus Christ, the righteous, who bridges the gap, who comes to our side. He is our paraclete advocate. That same word translated advocate in 1 John 2, hold on to your seat, is translated comforter in John 14. You should know, wait a minute, Brother Joe, that's a discrepancy because John 14 says, and when the Father, he will send unto you, talking about the Holy Spirit, another comforter. So in, in John 14, the, the comforter is referred to as the Holy Spirit. Uh, but now in 1 John, the, the advocate or the paraclete or the comforter is referred to as Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, and that must be a discrepancy. That must be a contradiction. Wrong again. There are none of those in the Bible. John 14, the Holy Spirit is our paraclete. First John chapter number two, Jesus Christ is our paraclete. One is our comforter, the other is our advocate. Both mean the same thing, to plead our case, called alongside to aid in the time of trouble. You say, well, preacher, if John 14 says he's the Holy Spirit and 1 John 2 says it's Jesus Christ, that must be a contradiction. No, that's what I call double coverage. That's not a contradiction. That's double coverage. Let me ask you this, theologically, positionally, where is Jesus Christ? He ascended on high, took his own blood, put it on the mercy seat, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high as our great high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But theologically, positionally, where is the Holy Spirit? Where is the Holy Spirit? Where is the Holy Spirit? God is on His throne. God the Son is on His right hand. Where is the Holy Spirit? If you save, raise your right hand. Hold up your index finger. You ready? Where is the Holy Spirit? So if Jesus is my troubleshooter and my bridge builder and my advocate, he's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. But the Holy Spirit is my comforter, my troubleshooter, and my bridge builder, and my paraclete. He's down in my heart. I got one up there, and I got one in here. Lord of mercy. How can somebody be nothing more than a conqueror and a victor in Jesus Christ? Well, you got somebody in heaven keeping you right, and you got somebody in your heart keeping you right. 
I've got one in heaven at the right hand of the throne of God called Jesus Christ the righteous. And when I believed and repented and received him as my Savior, his Holy Spirit came on the inside. And I got one in heaven and I got one on earth, one at the right hand of God and one sealed in my heart called the Holy Ghost unto the day of redemption. You say, I don't understand it. I don't think I'll do either, but I'm enjoying the fire out of it. And the greatest way I can explain it is this. How many has ever been on a boat? And I don't mean some cruise ship the size of two or three football fields. Anybody ever been on just a regular boat? I want to tell you, I know this much about boats. They are supposed to float. In that boat is a motor that makes it run. In that boat is a paddle that you use in case it don't run. And in that boat is a life jacket you better hold on to if it starts to sink. That's what I know about boats. But I learned a lesson about boats one day about 39 and a half years ago that I never forgot. I went fishing with Billy Kelly and some of his friends. That's the first mistake I ever made in my life because he knew less about boats than I did. You know you're in trouble when you get ready to leave this man's house and his wife walks you out to the door and says, hope to see you again, brother. On and on right then, something's up. We get out there in the ocean and our motor blows. I mean, black smoke goes everywhere. And here we are floating. I don't mean in a lake. I don't mean in a river. I'm talking about Kelsey's Pond, Kelsey's Lake, Kelsey's Ocean. If you don't watch Andy Griffith, you didn't get that. And I said, what are we going to do? He said, well, throw the anchor out so we don't get any further away. Well, I grabbed this thing. It looked like an anchor to me, and I picked it up, and I chunked it. There was no rope tied to it. And then I got fussed at and hit in the back with a rod. Wham! And I don't think he cussed, but I'm not too sure. I don't think he did. He said, you young people don't know nothing. I found out that anchor may be big, that anchor may weigh a lot, it may be huge, but you got to have a rope tied to that anchor. And I found something else. You better have the other end of that rope tied to the boat or it's not going to do you any good. Son, aren't you glad that day at bloody Calvary when the sons of God died for the sons of men that the sons of men might become the sons of God and he went into the holy of holies with his blood and put it on the mercy seat and anchored our eternal redemption. It stuck. It's anchored. It is there, anchored to the throne of God. But that moment you believe Christ and trust in Him as your Savior, the other end of that line was anchored in the depths of your soul, tied into the depths of your heart. So I'm fixed up there and I'm fixed in here. 
heaven can't get too far from me and I can't get too far from heaven because he is our advocate. He is our bridge builder. He is our troubleshooter. God's perfect person, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And then when I didn't think he'd get any better, I saw verse 2. God's perfect plan. God's perfect perception. God's perfect person. Then I seen verse 2, God's perfect provision. He is not only our advocate in verse 1, but look in verse 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not ours only. Well, glory. But for the sins of the whole world. God's perfect provision. My time has come and gone. And I don't care how many two or three say, Preach, brother. Most of them done checked that on me past 12. And I, I'm debating, should I go into the doctrine of propitiation now or later? Let me give you the little digest version now and expound it later. Propitiation. What in the world does that big old word mean? Propitiation. What Christ propitiated. What did he propitiate? What is propitiate? What is it? It comes from a little word that means to cover. That comes from a little word that means to atone. And that little word goes all the way back to a little word called to paint over or to pitch it. Now, you Bible students, remember the first time you read the word pitch in the Bible. It's not a baseball game. The first time you read about pitch in the Bible is Genesis, Noah, the ark. That ark is God's vessel of salvation. God's going to preserve the world. He's going to preserve life for the future inside of that vessel called an ark. And it has got to endure the crashing waters of a flood many, many, many days. So it can't leak and it can't sink. So God says, take the slime, take the tar, and pitch it, judgment-proof it, make it where it doesn't leak. I don't want the water to get to you, and I don't want you to get to the water. Between you and what you deserve is the pitch. Between you and what you should have had is the pitch. And the only difference between you and those dying in the crashing waves of the flood is you on the right side of the pitch. Pitch it within and without. Cover it. Paint it. They picked upon that word, atone it, to remove it from sight. And the high priest would go into the tabernacle on the day of atonement and put that perpetuating, painting blood on the mercy seat, not just to pitch, but to cover, to atone the sins of mankind. And I see Noah and his three sons, they're pitching that ark. They're judgment-proofing that ark. 
I see the priest on the day of atonement as he's got that perpetuating blood and he's painting the ark with the blood and he's putting the blood on the ark and he is atoning. Oh, but I see him the shadows. This man by the name of Jesus Christ that one day will walk out of the throne room of heaven to a manger in a land called Bethlehem of Judea. And he will go to the cross of Calvary. And he will pitch. He will paint. He will atone. He will cover. He will judgment proof. He will satisfy. Lord, somebody help me right there. And ladies and gentlemen, the only reason why we're going to heaven someday and the only difference between us and hell-bound sinners, we're on this side of the blood. We're on this side of the atonement. We're on this side of the pitch. And He is the covering. He is the atonement. He is the mercy seat. He is the propitiation. He is the judgment proof of our sin. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. In closing, I could ask this question all the time. Well, Brother Job, Jesus died for every man and he tasted death for every man and he died for the sins of the world and he perpetuated the sins of the world. And why is most of the world lost and going to hell? That's a good question. I remember one day, my grandkids got all my money. That's what they're for. You don't have to worry about leaving an inheritance. They're going to spend it before you leave them one. And I'm going up the road and I remembered, man, I am hungry. But I don't have no money. I'm trying to go easy on that credit card. You know, that thing will come due. And when I drive about six hours, and I mean, my ribs are playing Dixie on my stomach. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. But I don't have no money, and I'm trying to save on my credit card. So I check in the motel, and I'm getting ready for church. I'm rushing around trying to get my tie and everything, and I drop my wallet. When I drop my wallet, the prettiest $20 bill fell out on the ground. It was one of them that I had been burying, hiding from the all-seeing eye. And I ain't talking about Jesus. It's a J, but it ain't Jesus. And I'd folded that thing over real neat, had that thing hit, and it fell out. By that time, it's time to go to church. It's too late to go get some groceries. But I promise you, as soon as the last day, men will say it. Lord of God, I went to Dairy Queen and laid her out, son. I took that foot-long hot dog. I sucked it through a straw. <laughs> Got me a big old drink and one of them big old cones of ice cream that you dip it down there. And by the time you get through, it's on you. It's on the car. It's on everybody. But it sure is good. I would have starved to death had not I discovered all along that little $20 was in my pocket. And I know that is a crude illustration to describe something so wonderful as God's perfect provision. 
But ladies and gentlemen, can I remind you every day of your life, men and women and boys and girls go through a mundane, lost, hell-bound life. And it's not because Christ did not love them. And it's not because Jesus did not die for them. It's because they never reached out and by faith trusted Him as their Savior. You've got to use what's been available. And aren't you glad Christ is available? Not just for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. You're talking about the wisdom and compassion of God. Looking beyond our fault, seeing our need. And not because of us, but in spite of us. Paid a debt he didn't know because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. I didn't tell Brother Hopper to sing that song. I didn't tell you to sing it. But what a great song. I believe that's what it says in the Scripture. Oh, what a Savior. And we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. As we stand together this morning, I want to remind you that Christ died for you. Christ died for you. It wasn't the Roman soldiers that nailed Christ to the cross. They were just instruments. It was your sins and mine.